Do you know that if you traveled to um, the United Kingdom this time of year and you were going down the sidewalk and uh, you happened to pass someone who was in the festive holiday spirit, what they would probably say to you is, Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to you. When I um, lived there uh, in the United Kingdom for a couple of years, uh, way back when, I was often struck by this particular way of, of giving uh, holiday wishes, this happy Christmas thing. And, and there was a part of me that always wanted to correct them. <laughs> it's Merry Christmas, thank you. It's Merry Christmas. Uh, but the more and more I really sat with it, the more and more I realized that their way of saying it probably captures a little bit more pointedly the, the particular aspirations that many of us bring to this particular time of year. Think how much we associate Christmas with happiness. I know the kids do, right? We are all thinking about the kind of happiness we can bring into each other's lives. What, what particular thing in the, in, in the home uh, would bring a great happiness to somebody I know? What, it, what's missing in the golf bag or in the car, in the toy closet, in the tech uh, uh, arrangements, that if I get it, uh, will bring a great deal of happiness? We're thinking in this time a lot about the people around us. Um, are they happy? We're looking at the folks at the Christmas parties we're sponsoring. Are people having a good time? Are they happy at, at being here? We may be evaluating our own lives as compared to where we were last year at this time. Am I feeling happy? Um, this, this desire for happiness reaches its crescendo, in a sense, in American culture during Christmas time each and every year. What exactly is happiness? Uh, how does it happen? Um, how does it grow in us? And should it really be occupying as much of our energy um, as it typically does in the American experience? Um, it strikes me that there are a few things we can reliably say about this subject, and that's what I want to think about with you today a little bit. The nature of happiness. Uh, what can we really say about that? Well, I would suggest to you that one thing we can definitely say is that happiness is a feeling. Okay, happiness is a feeling. Nobody I've ever met has a bad toothache or is shivering out in the cold or has just buried a loved one and then turns around and says, boy, am I happy, right? They never in those kinds of moments say that kind of thing because happiness involves feeling good. It, it really does. It, it, it's, a, it's a deep feeling. It's a palpable sense of well-being, happiness is. Secondly, happiness, this sense of well-being is powerfully conditioned by circumstances, isn't it? Uh, it it's, it's, a, it's something that's produced by a particular set of arrangements. Uh, it's, it's related closely to the immediate and, I would dare I say, the variable conditions of life on planet Earth. One of the classic uh, illustrations of this um, is in the memorable uh, movie um, Christmas Vacation. How many of you have seen that 
old classic, right? Yes, now it's an old classic. Uh, and, and you'll know, those of you who don't uh, know the story, um, the uh, lead character is a fellow named Clark Griswold. He's played by Chevy Chase. And uh, he is going into the Christmas season fiercely and with great excitement and anticipation because he's had a huge year at business. Okay, he has been wildly successful. He is expecting a major bonus. And with this bonus, he is going to finally build this fantastic swimming pool for his family. And he's told the kids and the wife and, and even the extended family about the plan that he has. And they think he is a hero for this, right? They're excited too. They are what? Happy. Yes, they're amazingly happy. Everybody's happy in the Griswold house. But the bonus does not come through. And the swimming pool does not happen. And everybody is now what? Unhappy. That's right. They are terribly unhappy. Now, it's a shallow example, I grant you, but it is also the true story. It tells us a true story about the way things so often work. For a lot of us, our sense of well-being in life... Our happiness is conditioned by the circumstances we happen to be going through right now. Some of you are going through circumstances right now that leave you happy. Some of you are intensely unhappy about the circumstances you're going through. Happiness varies with our health, with our wealth, with the opinions that others have of us, with the traffic, with the weather, with um, how our kids are doing, with how our sports teams are faring. Don't talk to me about that right now. Uh, It has a lot to do with whether we actually get what we want under the tree of life. Would you agree with that? I mean, that's kind of the way happiness works. And to some extent, it is also competitive. Happiness is a competitive or a comparative reality for a lot of us. Uh, Back in the Meyer house, in in my growing up years, we had this, um, I would have to call it now, a pernicious practice which means a bad practice, something you don't uh, really want to be reproducing in your house. Um, Because in my house, Santa organized people's presents into separate stacks. I don't know why Santa did that, but he did. And, And within a nanosecond of bursting into the living room on Christmas morning and seeing your stack compared to the size of your brother or your sister's stack would send the happiness index up or down, right? It, it would immediately impact my feelings. I would open each present then, and I would look over to see whether one of my siblings got something better. And that would impact, in some way, my sense of happiness. I know you would never do this. You would never feel this way. I'm still in recovery over it. Pray for me. Um, But this is how happiness works. It's connected, in some of us at least, to this subconscious Darwinian impulse, this uh, sense of scarcity, this um, comparative mindset, this zero-sum game in which we're either winning or losing, we're either ahead of the pack or we're falling behind. Just watch what happens when somebody else gets that parking space at the mall Right or gets that final item that you were looking for, see what happens to your sense of happiness. And I think because of all of these factors, happiness is also a pursuit. 
versus usually a, a possession. It's, it's something we're always chasing after. Uh, this idea of the pursuit of happiness, as you know, is very big in America. It, we enshrined it in our constitution, the right to the pursuit of happiness. But the very phrase suggests that happiness is a hunt. It's an ongoing process. It's a perpetual searching. And, and getting our feelings and our circumstances and our comparative status all lined up exactly right in a way that will leave us feeling consistently happy, this is a very difficult thing. And so we are constantly, relentlessly pursuing happiness. And it, it can be a very frenetic pursuit. It can be an exhausting pursuit. I mean, a beleaguering kind of pursuit because we have it one moment and then we don't. We open one of life's presents and we go, yay! We open the next one and we go, oh, oh, fruitcake, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I think this is why we need a truer story to, to build our lives on than the myth of happiness that's constantly being peddled uh, in our direction. I don't want you to get me wrong on this because happiness is not bad, right? It's not a, a wicked thing to want your kids or your spouse or even yourself to feel happy. You want uh, this. This is part of the good grace of life is that we have these moments of happiness. But since that feeling is so volatile and so unpredictable and unreliable, why settle for mere happiness when God offers to us an even greater gift, as the Christmas story reminds us, when God offers us great joy, great joy. Listen again to the message of the angel as, as declared to the shepherds in the story. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. I bring you good news that will cause what? Great joy for all the people. Now, most of us, I think, tend to have um, fairly romantic um, understandings uh, of most of the characters that we meet in the Christmas story. It's not our fault. They've just been sort of presented to us this way. And the shepherds are no exception. We sometimes see the shepherds as these sort of knights of Bethlehem, these uh, sort of brave, bold, uh, wonderful, fuzzy figures. Um, but the reality of the life of shepherds back in the first century was not always a happy one. May I, may I just underline that for you? The feelings, first of all, that went with, with shepherding were not always pleasant. You were going to spend a lot of your life way out in the boondocks. You, you were going to spend a ton of your time exposed to the elements with very minimal shelter, uh, you would be hanging around a flock of stinking sheep. I, I did this. I actually worked for two years for a, a couple of weeks as a shepherd in the north of Ireland, and they do. They don't smell great. Um, they're poor conversational partners. You're a long way away, uh, if you're a guy, from girls and from your family and, and from kind of stimulating uh, experience. Uh, you are bored out of your mind much of the time. I mean, bored, bored, bored out of your mind. Uh, you start envying road crews. 
Um, you're just, it's just a, a, not a fun place. You are then occasionally risking your life because marauding creatures come in after the flock and you've got to do something about that. And these circumstances are not ideal. Your feelings aren't good. Your circumstances are not great. And as far as competition for status goes, relative to other people, you're a loser. You are a loser. Shepherds were losers in the first century uh, vantage point. They were scoundrels. They were widely seen as scoundrels, who, who the most dishonest people class of people in the world who grazed other people's land, who sold off the increase of the flock and kept the profit for themselves, even if they were working for someone else. In fact, rabbis routinely warned their congregations, don't buy from shepherds. These guys try and sell you some, some, some milk or some wool or, or, you know, meat. Don't do it. It's stolen goods. Stay away from these people. In fact, shepherds were viewed as ceremonially unclean. They weren't allowed into worship. They would not, you would not be sitting next to a shepherd in the first century. They were barred from serving on juries because they were regarded as that unreliable. In fact, a rabbinical commentary on Psalm 23, which I know presents a very different kind of shepherd to us, But a rabbinical commentary on that same passage sums up the attitude of the time, and I quote, there is no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. Wow. Can you see why these guys were not considered happy much of the time? And yet it is to these people, to them, the Bible says. That's the blinking word in the story. It was to them. That God came to present the gift of great joy in their lives. How would you describe the difference between happiness and joy? What's the difference? I, I used to think that joy was just happiness with the volume turned up, right? When I was really, really happy that that was joy. But I want to try and suggest to you the distinction between these two very different experiences in life. Happiness is a sense of well-being, okay? It's a feeling of well-being. It's based on, you know, just literally the the feelings. But joy is a state of well-being. Okay, not a sense of well-being. It's a state of well-being that is based on how God feels about you. Not not your feelings, God's feelings is the foundation of a sense of joy. Happiness comes from your immediate circumstances, as I've described. But joy comes from knowing your eternal condition. Knowing the ultimate condition in which you stand versus the temporary changing circumstances of your life. That, that's the derivation of joy. Happiness is often competitive, as I said, it's, or it's comparative, but joy is much more often communal. Joy is something that actually brings us together as a people uh, with others. It, it's something that magnetizes 
magnetizes communities. It's a good we often feel in greater measure when we are with others. It connects us with others. It makes us eager to share with others. Happiness is a relentless pursuit that you're never going to ever be done with. But joy is like this inbreaking gift that comes to you, not of your own effort, and that stays with you and fills you up with a sense of wonder and gratitude. That's the difference between happiness and joy. And the shepherds we meet in the story, they're not happy people, at least not particularly, but they have become the recipients of great joy. Because out there in those fields, in the midst of that very difficult life that they're living, they are awestruck to find out that God sees them. He notices them. (laughs) He cares for them enough to actually reveal himself to them. These people that weren't even allowed in church. God comes out and does church for them in the field. He sees them and gathers them into his glory. One of the principal roles of the shepherds in that particular region, in the hills around Bethlehem, was to raise the flocks that were used in the ritual sacrifices of the temple. The people of the temple were constantly sacrificing sheep, little blemishless lambs, repenting of their sin again and again, never sure they really had forgiveness. And those sheep were a crucial part of that. And now in this moment at Christmas, God comes and reveals to those very shepherds who are raising those flocks, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world once and for all. He comes to them with this amazing news. The life of a shepherd, as you know, was an unpredictable challenge. Yet that night, these men discover that whatever their immediate circumstances may be, they have a state of eternal security because they are those upon whom the favor of God rests. The ultimate sovereign, provident God has favored them. And they no longer need to be quite so anxious about the variable circumstances of their life. And as the shepherds go on to Bethlehem, these isolated men are suddenly drawn into community. A larger community than they would have ever experienced in any other way. They're introduced to Mary and Joseph and they become part of what now is an expanding movement. A growing community that would one day reach out and include you as it does right now in the fellowship of the shepherds' lives, in the wonder of what God is doing to redeem this world. And the shepherds began to spread that good news. They became the first evangelists. These ones who were not even allowed to testify in court are now the ones who are the first sharers of the good, human sharers of the good news of the coming of Christ. If you remember nothing else I say, please remember this. Joy... The joy that God offers people is a life-changing gift. It is a new foundation. It is an alternative power source in life. Joy is a life-changing gift. I I was reminded of this um, recently when I was um, doing research for this series and I came across an article from the August, um, one of the August editions of Gentleman's Quarterly Magazine. Um, I, I read GQ a lot because 
Mike Murphy and Pete Stearns and the guys I work with look like they could be cover models uh, in that magazine. Um, and I read it, hoping to learn their secrets. And so I'm, I'm reading this, and there is a, um, an interview in GQ in August of this year um, with Stephen Colbert. Tell me you know who Stephen Colbert is, right? So for those who have been living in Belgium, um, Stephen is... The, probably the most pop, popular comedian and certainly one of the top most popular comedians in America today and the, the successor to David Letterman. Um, and in this um, article, um, what you discover about Stephen, if you didn't already know it, is a whole lot more than most average Americans are aware of. Colbert's early life was not happy. Um, it was far from happy for, for understandable reasons. When he was 10 years old, his father and two of his brothers were killed in a plane crash. And uh, just a devastating tragedy. And he and his mom uh, essentially are left uh, alone together um, to, f to fend, at a again, at age 10. And when asked by the interviewer in this article how he could experience these losses and not become immensely bitter and, and, and angry, Colbert said that the secret to his survival was his Christian faith. Did you know that about him? The secret was his Christian faith. The context, and I'm quoting him, the context for my existence is that I am here to know God, to love God, to serve God, that we might be with each other in this world, really with each other in this world and in the next. And Colbert goes on to describe how in those really dark days, uh, when they were literally out there in the fields by themselves in desperate conditions, uh, his mom's faith held strong. And Colbert says he watched as through those days of unremitting grief, and those were awful days, his mom drew on her faith that even sorrow and suffering are inseparable from ultimate joy because there is a God who is sufficient, who's always at work, who never lets us go, and whose sovereignty and ultimate redemptive power can be trusted. And he saw his mom living this faith, and he heard this faith proclaimed in the Catholic Church where he attended as a boy, and it changed his life. He was 35 years old before the fullness of all this really hit him and got fully consolidated. And, and he says that he was walking down the street when all of a sudden, and I'm quoting him again, Colbert says, it stopped me dead. And I went, oh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for my life. And he said, I felt guilty in light of what I'd suffered and who I'd lost to say that. But I felt this, this surge of gratitude. He, he says, it doesn't mean... It doesn't mean that I wanted all of it, but I can hold both of these ideas in my head. It would be ungrateful of me not to take everything I have in life and experience in life with gratitude. And to this day, on the desk of Colbert in CBS Studios sits this simple plaque containing a truth that he once heard in church, and I quote it, joy is the most infallible evidence of the presence of God. Ambushed by joy, 
in the midst of the fields of pain. Colbert would go on to say, joy is the most infallible evidence of the presence of God. I don't know how it's going for you this Christmas. I don't know whether for you personally it's a happy time right now or whether it's a really hard time. Um, I don't know what the days ahead actually hold for me or for any of us here in this room. I know there's a lot in life today that challenges the Clark Griswold in all of us. There are marauders. We dwell in fields where wolves are roaming right now, seeking to do terrible damage and doing damage. We live in times where there's chronic injustice that must be addressed and and repaired. We must all care about that. We live in a time of terrible division in far too many places, but we will not lose hope. We won't. As the people of God who know this true story, we will not lose hope. For I bring you good news that I pray will be the cause of great joy for you this day to strengthen your life. God notices and knows you just as he did those shepherds. He he takes notice of you. He comes to you this season to reveal himself to you. The angel's coming to you to help you see the glory of his, of, of his work and, his, and of your worth in his eyes. The divine favor that God has sent to rest upon you is a source of eternal security for you. It, it, it's an ultimate assurance for you that can enable you to let go of some of that anxiety that may be influencing your life. No matter how your life circumstances go, He's there for you. He's at work. His favor's upon you. You're a part of his community now. You're part of this communal joy, this expanding, powerful circle of his grace and his goodness. He's given you an immensely important role to play as a a sharer of the good news that there's hope in this world because of God's presence with us and the power that he has to renew all of life. And so share with the least and share with the lost and share with the last. Be generous, be gracious and hospitable, extend invitations. Give out that that hope that the birth of Jesus assures for us. And may this very true story enter into your heart and your soul and your mind and fill up your strength like the inbreaking of light, like the song of angels on a starry night, like the ripple of laughter in the presence of a great comedian till it fills you with a wonder and a hope and a gratitude that nothing in this world can ever kill. That's my prayer for you. I hope you have a happy Christmas. I hope you have even a merry Christmas. But most of all, I wish you a truly joyful Christmas, a truly joyful Christmas, one that is filled by the great joy for which Jesus is the cause, for the reality is, the true story is, joy is the most infallible evidence of the presence of God, and I hope he fills you with that today and days to come.
Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we open our hearts, minds, soul, and strength to your coming afresh. Ambush us by your joy. Fill us up to overflowing and enable us to go forth to share the good news with those we meet. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.